Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Why some couples get along and others don't, sometimes to the extent of terminating their relationship, is a curious question, the answer to which is likely to bring both pleasure and unhappiness to each of the couples so concerned. Michael Basta has been a licensed clinical social worker in Sonoma County, California since 1988. He is a trained and certified Gottman Couples Therapist. This training identifies the traits and behaviors of couples that are useful to predict how long any particular relationship will last. Michael Basta visited the studios of Radio Curious on May 21st, 2010, and we began our conversation by describing the negative traits and behaviors that indicate a dark future for the relationship of the couples with whom he meets. If I could start with the negative first, and that's kind of how the research went. The way that this went was that Gottman and his colleague, Robert Levinson, were a couple of guys that had a series of failed relationships with women over time, and they were very frustrated, as they would say now. And they did this exploratory research to see you know, what would predict relationships falling apart. They started seeing couples, and over the course of about 30 years, Gottman saw about 3,000 couples. And what he found was four factors that really you could look at a 15-minute segment of videotape. And if you see these four factors sort of embedded in that segment of tape, you could predict with about 92% accuracy that within five years, that couple will either be miserable or they'll break up. So the question is, what are those factors? And hopefully our listeners can remember them and hopefully not see them in their own relationship. Hopefully not is is exactly right. Well, uh, Gottman somehow came up with the name the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse for these four factors. These would be things that you would see when the couple has been given the instruction of having a discussion about, say, their last argument or an ongoing area of dispute. And what you'd see would be a lot of criticism. Criticism meaning one party talking about a, an interpersonal problem as if it, that problem is embedded within the, the personality or the body of the other person. So in other words, it'd be a lot of things like you know, blaming comments. You always do. You always do that. You never do this, that kind of thing. You'd see a lot of defensive kind of behaviors, you know, a whole range of defenses, acting sort of as an innocent victim or, or getting angry and, and acting with righteous indignation. You'd see not only contemptuous actions, but also contemptuous facial expressions. And so you'd see this stereotyped look of contempt, which is the combination of an eye roll and then the curling of the left side of the mouth. So, you know, so they would slow down videotape and they would look for what they call micro expressions in the tape. And you would see contempt frequently coming up. And contempt really means having an attitude of superiority in one way or another over the other party in the relationship. Could be 
an attitude of moral superiority, of intellectual superiority, of you know, any kind of superiority. You would see this contempt, and then the fourth of the, of the four horsemen is what's called stonewalling. And stonewalling is a kind of withdrawal in which one person just kind of checks out. And we men make up about 85% of stonewallers. So that's a real male thing to do, to kind of just check out of the relationship and check out of the conversation, to be there physically but not, not mentally. So in, in terms of defining couples who have a prospectus for a long-term relationship, you don't see any or very few of the four horsemen that you talk about. You, you may see three of the four but then very quickly you'd see repair. In a, a couple that would predictably have a long and reasonably happy relationship, you may see criticism, defensiveness, and some stonewalling, but you wouldn't see any contempt. What's the repair that you speak of? The repair is going to differ from couple to couple. I mean, it may be anything from a bit of humor that comes up in, in the middle of the, of the conversation. It may be an apology. It may be someone stopping and slowing down the pace of the conversation or acting in a way that somehow soothes the other party. In Gottman's research, he talked about one guy whose repair behavior for his partner would be to have this kind of silly smile. He was a guy with this kind of big bow tie and he would just kind of make this kind of weird smile, and his partner would just sort of melt in the middle of you know, any argument. And for them, that was repair. You know, For another couple, the husband might do that and might get walloped over the head. But for that particular couple, that just was soothing to the partner, and it derailed the kind of argument that was going on. Do you know if this same four horsemen way of looking at couples works for same gender couples? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Gutman initially started out looking at just heterosexual couples, but then he's done follow-up studies that, that looked at same-sex couples, and the outcomes are very much the same. You mentioned that 85% of the stonewalling yeah. is done by men. That's right. Why? You know, there's probably two kinds of explanations. The one would be would have to do with socialization, that in our society, men are not taught to talk about their feelings, especially their softer feelings. There's not a lot of reinforcement in our society for that. The other would be more of a biological explanation, and that would have to do with how we're wired as men. And what you find with stonewallers, if you do like Gottman did in, this, in, in his research, and if you would measure the physiology of the couples, you'd see that the stonewallers are not just simply turning away. They're not just refocusing their attention. They're physiologically aroused in a fight-flight kind of a manner. And so some people, including Gottman, would say that you know, men are wired you know, for vigilance, for protection, for hunting. You know, it probably goes back to our you know, early you know, beginnings of our species. And so in this kind of a conflict situation, men are, again, flooded with emotion in this physiologically aroused place. And one common choice that we may take, rather than lashing out, would be to just sort of withdraw. Michael, what would be the antidote to stonewalling in Gottman's Four Horsemen, as, as you would describe them? 
you would think that it would just be the opposite of withdrawing, that one should just speak up more, but that actually would be inadvisable because usually that would create more of an argument. So actually the, the antidote to stonewalling is, is self-soothing, maybe taking a break from a, co- a conversation that gets too heated and then coming back later, you know, waiting until one is, is calm and usually taking at least a, a break of about a half hour to do that. So that you can do something else to completion, a short thing in the end. Exactly, because the stonewaller is flooded. The stonewaller is in a fight-or-flight mode. The stonewaller is full of cortisol and adrenaline and uh, is ready to either fight or run away. So the person needs to get deactivated first. And then at that point, has more of a chance of having a better conversation. To discuss the content of the issue. Exactly. What's your experience in dealing with a couple of men? men who are in a couple relationship with regard to stonewalling and withdrawal? Well, my experience would be similar to what the research reflects, that oftentimes what you'll see in a same-sex relationship is that you'll see these same sorts of behaviors, and it may go either way. It may be that that one member of that party tends to be more of the the stonewaller, and the other one would, would tend to be more of someone who would approach, but you would oftentimes tend to get that same kind of of a split where one person is more approaching and one more person is more withdrawing. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Michael Basta, a licensed clinical social worker from Sonoma County with 22 years experience and who is trained and certified as a Gottman couples therapist. And we're talking about John Gottman's Four Horsemen, behaviors of some couples that give information that would allow the length of time or the durability of their coupledom. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Michael, when you see some of these four elements, what steps do you follow to bring them to the attention of the couple so that they can internalize them and work with them more in their relationship outside of your presence? The first part of this would be during the feedback session, in which, which would be the third planned session in which I'd see a couple. I would do a little bit of what I'd call psychoeducation with a couple. I would explain to the couple what these elements are. So they would have some kind of understanding. I might also have them do some reading about Gottman's research so that they would have some kind of, of an internal map, some kind of language to go by. And then during a couple session, I would actually stop the behavior. And so I may, in the middle of a conversation, just sort of say stop. And I would point out what I saw going on, and I might ask one member of the couple to try to do something different. And it could be that what would need to happen is that we may need to actually really slow a session down. It could be that that session is just you know ramping up too much. But literally what I would be doing would be stopping or blocking that behavior immediately in the session. And the session is generally about an hour? An hour to an hour and a half. You know, the preference would be to have hour and a half sessions just because there's so much material is covered in a couple session. Oftentimes an hour and a half would be the preferable length of time. So you point out the behavior to the couple and ask if the one who's off track could change the model, express his or her feelings in a different form. Exactly, yeah. What happens? 
And I realize there's a great breadth of people who visit you. Well, I guess if it all went my way and it went smoothly, the idea is that for each one of those four horsemen, there's an antidote. Tell us. Tell us. Well, with criticism, the idea there would be that I'd want to be working with a couple to learn how to do what's called a softened startup, to complain as opposed to criticizing. So the idea there would be to learn how to speak to one's partner in a way that doesn't put them down. So it would be essentially to take the problem out of the body of the partner and put it in between the couple as if it's like a soccer ball. Can you give us two examples, the criticism and the complaint? Absolutely. Well, going back to your your comment earlier, uh, the, the common thing with criticism would be to say, you always do this. You know, you never, you never talk to me. Well, in, instead, of, instead of saying something like that, what, what I would be working with a couple to learn how to do would be to say, you know, first of all, how that person would feel and what they would want different, what their, what their need would be. So instead of saying, you never talk to me, it would be when you come home from, from work and I see you, I long to speak with you. When you sit at the computer, I, I get lonely. You know, I, I, I really need you to talk with me a little bit. So I'm saying the same thing. You're owning the feeling yeah. as opposed to delivering it to the other person yeah, exactly. and putting them in control. Exactly, yeah. I'm taking responsibility for the feeling. I'm saying what my needs are. I'm saying how I feel. Suddenly I'm not clobbering my partner with that. So how about the innocent victim defense and the contemptuous visage? Well, the the antidote to defensiveness is just to take even a bit of responsibility. So it would be, say, in in that same case, it might be that uh, as my partner says something to me like, you never talk to me, you know, uh, uh, rather than saying something like, well, I've worked all day and I'm tired and, uh, you know, and I need my space and you're always picking on me, I might say, you know, honey, I'm, 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 so, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize I was doing that. I didn't realize I was turning away from you. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk with you. What I need is just, if I could just have 15 minutes so I can, I can just sort of pull myself together after work because I had a crazy day, then I'm, I'm yours. It sounds to me, that using the term honey, an endearing term to your partner at the time that you are really frustrated is a stretching a little bit under the circumstances that you describe. It, that, may be, that may be stretching it. And it may be that by taking responsibility, it could be that, that uh, I'm not able to uh, take 100% responsibility. It would be enough. It was a good, kind of good enough bit of, of uh, taking responsibility, which, is, which might be just something like, give me five minutes. I, I, I didn't realize that you needed that. I need, you know, I need my five minutes. I need my 15 minutes. Well, I know there's a lot more to, to discuss in these examples, but contemptuous actions and expressions, our face represents so much of what we think. That's right. In radio, it's the voice. Nobody sees what, what we look like. But let's talk about what can be seen. How do you deal with those when someone feels contempt? And unbeknownst to them, it's shown in the curl of the lip or the snicker? In a couple session, uh, especially when we're just learning this approach, uh, we, we oftentimes will videotape couple sessions because 
there are many times in which I know I, as a therapist, even now with quite a bit of training, will, will miss contempt. I may hear words that sound quite reasonable, and I may be listening to the content of a discussion and think, well, for example, this guy sounds pretty reasonable, but I look at the partner, and the partner is going bananas. And I might think, well, what's up with this partner? This partner really just seems like they're quite irrational. And then looking back at videotape, I may see, here's this look of contempt, and the partner sees that. And I may not be paying attention to that. So it's an example of the body language meaning more than the, the words that are said. Absolutely. I guess the, the bottom line with that is in this, as in what I would say any good therapy, the process is much more important than the content. So what's going on between the couple is really where I as a therapist would want to intercede. And again, if I was slick enough to, to note that this was contempt, then I would want to stop that then, and I would want to then point it out and just reflect that. And the antidote to contempt, Gottman would say, using a broader brushstroke, a couple would need to develop a kind of a culture of appreciation, to learn habits of appreciation. But in the moment, the contempt just needs to be blocked. It needs to be stopped. It needs to be pointed out. And then what I would be doing would be asking the, the person expressing the contempt to slow down and take a look at whatever emotion is going on for them, and then to try to talk in a different way. Habits of appreciation. Yes. Um, how would they be manifested? Words, actions, tokens, touching? It could be any of those things. But there's something more to it. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> That's good. The, uh, the more to it is that People need to, in, in intimate couples, relationships, need to open their mouths. They need to say. They need to not just think. And oftentimes what, what's, what's found in couples' relationships is that people have good intentions, and they may have very fond feelings, but oftentimes they don't express those things. So it's, it's really important, especially over time, you know, thinking about a relationship as a marathon and not a sprint, that couples need to get into the habits of expressing appreciation. And again, it can be in all the ways that you just talked about. And those ways will be more powerful if a couple learns about their love maps. And what Gottman means by love maps would be having a cognitive or an internal map of one's partner's likes, dislikes, dreams, hopes, desires, and so that the expressions of appreciation would somehow match up. In other words, I'll give you an example of my, my colleague Marcia, who does couples workshops with me, gave a beautiful example of how her father would always come home on any big occasion with cut flowers for mother. And he, it would be a big deal for him because he'd go out of his way to get these flowers. He'd remember that you know, this is her birthday, and she would take those flowers and after a short bit throw them in the garbage. And he'd be crushed. And he never really figured out what the problem was until one day they're talking and she said to him, to me, cut flowers mean death. You know, this is what you have at a funeral. For me, if you're going to give me a present, it has to be living. And he didn't know that. And here he was working, 
you know, really, in this case, he was trying to express that appreciation, but it wasn't ba- based on a love map. It wasn't based on mindfulness of who his partner was. You've talked about love maps, a cognitive internal map of how your partner thinks. What are some tools to identify the root and create that map? The basic sort of tool would be to ask open-ended questions. If you track the kinds of questions that one asks during courting, you'll see that most of those questions are open-ended. Things like, you know, what do you like to do? What's your favorite this? What's your favorite that? But they're they're not closed-ended questions, you know, questions that would lead only to a yes or no response. So part of it is just getting into the habit of taking some time and asking some of these kind of open-ended questions. You know, like, what do you hope for? What was your week like? Some things like that, that it gives a lot of information. There are specific sort of exercises that, you know, we might teach couples. But I would say that's the basic part of it, is that when we're together for a long time in a relationship, we tend to say things like, did you pay the the phone bill? Rather than, tell me your greatest hopes or your greatest fears. Michael, you were talking about uh, the couples' exercises that you have uh, in the workshop. You call them dyadic couples exercises. Yes. What do you mean by dyadic couples exercises? By dyadic, I mean that these are exercises that the couple does on their own. So we give them instructions. They have a workbook. As part of the workshop. During part, the workshop. During the workshop, yeah. And they do that. I, I would say about half of the workshop is is made up of these exercises so that we give some information and then we have the couple go out and have a conversation. And again, it's just the two of them. We never put them in a position where they're, they're uh, required in any way to speak in front of a group. So they, they're, they're always having a private kind of a conversation. So I can see in these workshops, you would have people, couples who are having a difficult relationship. Yes. And perhaps couples, one of whom, one member of whom, wouldn't want to go to a program like this. That's often true. <laughs> and then do you have couples who get along well in the similar workshop? We have a whole range of couples. We've had couples come to the workshop because they're there to celebrate their 10th wedding anniversary, and they're flying into the area so they can be in the wine country and come to this workshop. And we have couples that say, we, we separated three months ago, we're coming to this workshop to make a decision about whether we're going to get back together or whether we're going to divorce. So we have a whole range of, of couples. And, and the research that has been done on these workshops would say that, that a whole range of, of couples tend to benefit you know, by, the, you know, by this type of workshop. As opposed to having a workshop for any one particular of the several groups. Exactly, yeah. Why is that? Um, well, I think it's... My thought on it, anyway, is that the material is generally relevant to all couples, so we can adapt it to fit for any particular couple. Well, Michael Basta, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I have several questions. Absolutely. One is, what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Well... I'm sure if my wife were listening, she would say, we need to travel, dear. I'm asking about you. 
I'd probably be up for going with her to do that because I do have that interest. But for me, I'm very interested in relationships. I think that relationships have the potential to heal our world. We've spent a lot of time looking at psychopharmacological solutions to, you know, to our, our worldly problems, our internal problems, and, and I really think that, that uh, relationships are, are where it's at. I'm interested in my own relationship, my family relationships, and and I'm interested in helping other people around those. And another question, Michael Basta. Can you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment that you've experienced that that you remember? I'm kind of thinking along this Gottman frame right now, so I'll tell you one that came home for me regarding my relationship, and that is... You know, John Gottman is a mathematician, and, and what he found was that at a five-to-one ratio, couples that are in a conflict discussion will be expressing positive attributes to negative, even in conflict. And somehow this formula, this five-to-one formula, seems to work. So I've looked at my own relationship, and what I realize is that I can blow it. I can mess up. I can be human. But I got to make up at a five to one ratio. <laughs> so what you're saying is that if you are asking your partner to change a behavior, yeah, you should surround that request with four things that you like about the partner. Either if I'm asking my partner to ch- to change a behavior, or, or let's just say that I I'm human and I do the typical things that human beings do, like I forget to do something that my partner said was important to do, or I, I slip up and I say something that was mean, and I, and I go, oh, you know, that was really mean. I shouldn't have said that. What I do is then I make up kind of five to one, and I think, okay, I really got to, you know, kind of do this thing. Then usually that'll work out. One-to-one ratio is not enough. That was going to be my question. Does it work? I think it works, yeah. So my next question, can you tell us about an interesting book? Um, an interesting book that I've read recently that I think all men should read, and women should read this as well, but I, I'm really wanting to speak to the guys here in heterosexual relationships in particular, is a book called The Female Brain. A woman in one of our couples' workshops pointed this out to me, and it will say a lot to men about Oh, everything from uh, what happens when you have a child and how your wife changes. And as she goes into menopause and there's changes in your sexual relationship, you know, what that's about. And if you have a 13-year-old daughter, uh, what's going on with her? I think that it will save a lot of people a lot of frustration. The author of The Female Brain just published a book called The Male Brain. It, I didn't realize that. So I'm getting it. I, that's, that's fabulous. Thanks for letting me know that one. Well, Michael Basta, thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. Absolutely. Thank you. Michael Basta is a licensed clinical social worker based in Sonoma County, California, who is certified as a Gottman Couples Therapist. The book Michael Basta recommends is The Female Brain by Dr. Luann Brzezendi. Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. 
you may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California. 95482. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer, and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.